Good afternoon and welcome to this edition of the 21 News Podcast. I'm Managing Editor Justin Mitchell. As you know, we do a segment on our Facebook page a few nights a week called the 640 Special where we interview experts on the news of the day and take your questions. Earlier this week, we had on Dr. Benjamin Newman, one of the world's leading coronavirus experts and a Niles native. The response from Ben's appearance this week was overwhelmingly positive, and so we've got him here today to continue the discussion. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Oh, hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so uh, so first off, uh, because this is a little bit of a different format than the 640, just give me a little of your history. I mean, what was the journey from Niles, Ohio, to fighting viruses around the world? <laughs> <laughs> uh, long journey, a lot of twists and turns, uh, essentially, it just kept being things that would pop up and I'd look at them and say, you know what? Yeah, okay, why not? Why not try that thing? <laughs> <laughs> a series of those that led me from turnips to chickens, no, turnips to mice to chickens to humans, back to mice, and then we're out in, like, um, we've done some frog viruses and sea slug viruses now and just all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a lengthy title to the autobiography. You'll have to chop it down a little. <laughs> we're gonna work on that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so obviously the crisis that we're in right now. How is this virus different, and where I, I guess where did we go wrong? So the virus is very very similar to the SARS coronavirus that uh, probably originated in 2002 at the end of the year and uh, really started spreading in 2003. Um, and got all the same equipment, it goes into the same cells using the same sort of method and machinery. Um, the real difference, yeah, is that that one kind of did not get out of hand, and this one really has. I think part of it is that um, the original SARS coronavirus had some very early, fairly strong symptoms. Uh, it was a virus with a higher mortality rate. It killed more people. And what you had was a very consistent high fever. This was in 90-some percent of people. Um, and it was a quite high elevated fever, like you could detect it with a camera or just, you know, people yeah. would look hot. Um, with the new virus, uh, it's only about 50% of people even ever have a fever. And when they do, it's only raised about one degree above normal. That's not a major symptom. But you've got a, people, a lot of people still looking for that original SARS coronavirus 1 uh, type of presentation, and it's just not quite there. This, um, the symptoms are quite variable on the new virus, and that makes it very hard because a lot of the testing has been tied to, you know, ticking certain boxes. You got to have all these things and a doctor's notes, you know, and a note from your mother or whatever, and then you can go get a test. Yeah, and I think that has been to our disadvantage so far. So. Is it a is it a political problem or more of a broad sort of dropping of the ball? It's, is it all just because of the symptoms that it just sort of crept up because of that, because they're not so strong usually? Well, all right, so I try and stay out of politics, but I would say it's a problem that probably has a political solution. So what you would need to deal with this, um, uh, some things that we could have done are, um, so First of all, there was a test that was ready, I believe, in January. Uh, it's actually made by some colleagues um, over in Germany, and the test worked. And instead of just using that test, uh, the U.S., and for reasons which are not clear, and yeah, I don't know if people will ever be allowed to say exactly why or who said to do it, um, but we decided to develop our own test. And it ended up um, with a couple of, you know, sort of stops and starts, taking about a month and a half 
where we couldn't really do tests for the virus that the uh, government would believe. And so that was a that was a missed opportunity. Um, the other thing is just that we, we eventually got to the state where we've been um, restricting some of the uh, movements in some states. And honestly, if we'd done that a little harder for maybe a month, month and a half, we'd be through this already. We'd be where China is today. And I think that's better, at least in terms from a virologist's point of view. Um, my only concern is ending up with as few cases as possible, because every time there's even one transmission, that person could have the virus for another full month, and that basically pushes the goalpost back by another month for actually getting rid of this thing. So from a virologist's perspective, there's no acceptable amount of spread. Um, and I think what we're seeing is People are trying to look at this in different ways. They're trying to use some maybe nuance or saying, well, we could allow some spread and have some economy and, you know, mm -hmm. trying to balance things in a very politician-y uh, sort of way. I think that works really well for social problems, and I think that just falls apart when you run into a just a mechanical force of nature like the coronavirus. I think you have to treat it more like a volcano. Just as something that is dangerous and <laughs> we need to get people away from it and protect them from it right away. Now, we're obviously not doing that. I mean, we're not acting like it's a volcano. We're trying to ease back into society, which we wouldn't be doing if there was lava running through the street. <laughs> no, no, just get so, your toe in the lava, yeah. So, so, <laughs> given, right, so, gi so given what we are doing, what, I guess what do you make of that, and how does Ohio compare to the rest of the country? How does the U.S. compare to the rest of the world? Is there optimism, or is this a permanent change to society? Oh, I hope it's not permanent. Um, Ohio's been doing pretty well. Uh, they were uh, pretty quick to shut things down. They were pretty strict, and I, if I understand correctly, uh, reopening is going to come with uh, these recommendations or strong recommendations to wear masks. All those are positive steps. Um, they will limit the amount of virus spread, won't completely prevent it, but even limiting it significantly does allow you to get at least some things back going. And, uh, yeah, can't stay shut down forever. Uh, <laughs> right. But now that we're in this, you know, terrible position, uh, that's, yeah, that is at least one way that we know will work, and we don't have any other guaranteed solutions on the table at the moment. So long term, you hear people say, look, without a vaccine or some sort of really advanced treatment, we have some variation of, you know, having to wear masks or slow reopening or something like that. So talk to me about that. What's it take to get to that point? Are you optimistic? I know you mentioned how this is similar to previous coronaviruses. Does that at least put us ahead of the curve a little in, in getting to a vaccine? The previous record something like four years, right? I think the previous, well, it depends. Uh, you could say the previous record is um, the Ebola vaccine. I guess there were lab tests developing it, but from uh, actual, you know, first announcement that we're going to use this in people to modifying the gene to actually getting it out to people, I believe it was around a year, something like that. We can go back and check that uh, later. But yeah, that was uh, that was a remarkably efficient thing, and you had a lot of uh, different countries and a lot of different people pouring money, time, and effort into it, and I, I like that. When we get people together we can we can do a lot of clever stuff yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
So, so does that mean that you think you you have some optimism? I mean, that this can be a quicker thing? Because I just hear everything. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, sometimes I do these podcasts. Sometimes other people do. I wanted to make sure I did this one because. I, you know, I, I want to just sort of pick your brain on the things that keep me up at night because I imagine they're the things that are keeping other people up at night. And I want to know when well, there's sure. a point where things feel like they felt a couple months ago. And I know that we're a long way from that, but I don't know what it takes to get there. So what what it takes is probably uh, – so we're getting there in terms of testing, but we're not there yet. Um so there's this idea that we need to have some the capacity to do something like maybe three to five million tests a day, and some people have set up to like 10 million tests capacity today. Don't have to run them all, but you have to have that many locations. Ideally, there should be somewhere near your neighborhood. If you live in a suburb or a city where you can actually go and get tested, you shouldn't have to drive. And like I'm down here in Texas, there's a lot of Texas that's really rural and we need some kind of mobile testing solution to get out around those places. Like uh, we used to carry uh, sort of on mule back uh, libraries in West Virginia back in the day. We need something like that, but for uh, COVID testing. So that's the first part. And the other part is a really good contact tracing network. So right now there's a lot of people uh, that were doing sort of um, service industry labor and a lot of unemployment there. And this contact tracing needs a lot of people. And I would say rather than just pay people to sit at home and we don't know what to do with you, we could retrain a lot of those people. So contact tracing is just making phone calls, writing things down, and doing a conscientious job of it. And with just a little bit of training, that is within what pretty much anybody can do, I would say. So it's not necessarily um, highly specialized. I mean, this is something no, that we can no. put people almost sort of like a national, like uh, like almost like a public works program. Almost like a public works program. There you go. Yeah, if you're going to spend the money anyway, why not get something for your, you know, sure, <laughs> for your sure. dollar, right? And it's a thing that we need to build. And uh, yeah, you need to be calling all the people that have been in close contact with a person since they were probably six. You have to try and figure that out. But the doctors do that part. And then, boom, you get a list of names, and you just got to keep making calls, and uh, you try to get all those in for testing, and you try to get them to take their temperature every morning and report any, you know, shortness of breath or anything like that. And, yeah, that just lets people – the virus has about a week's head start on us because there's a week where you don't know you're sick um, before you can be tested positive or show any symptoms. And this is the way that we uh, get that week back and uh, get back in front of the virus. So once you've gathered that info, what do you do with it? I know you said that's how you get the week back, but how exactly is that useful? Yeah, those are the people that you get in for testing, or you send somebody out there to test them. You don't need to necessarily test everybody, but you definitely have to test every contact of everybody who is a positive. Because the virus doesn't, you know, it doesn't fly through the air like a superhero. It goes you know, very short distances from my mouth to yours and vice versa. <laughs> so how far are we from having the testing and the contact tracing capacity? Is that a long way off, or do you, just, do you think we're getting there? So we ha- we're getting there. We're getting better. I think we're in the hundreds of thousands of tests that can be run uh, in a day uh, right now, which is better. It's a lot better than we were, but uh, as a nation... We can do a lot more. (laughs) There are some very small countries that are burying us in uh, that department. I know, for example, right now, um, China pretty much got their problem under control, but they have all these workers that are trained up and ramped up, and they're actually exporting doctors 
and specialists and testers to other countries. Uh, some colleagues in Iraq were telling me that, yeah, we've got some Chinese advisors that have come in and are uh, you know, getting our Ministry of Health uh, going, which is really nice, but that ought to be us, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> now, does the state-by-state approach work, or does it need to be a national strategy? I mean, for instance, I mean, you said Ohio seems to be doing pretty well. I know some states are opening up a lot faster. Some states have more testing capacity than others. Does this is it is it possible to say, well, one state, might get through this quicker or not because people start moving around. Well, yeah. So imagine uh, you're an army trying to fight a battle. You just let each unit, you know, (laughs) go in and fight if they want or or not. Yeah. (laughs) I think coordination from the top down is definitely the way you get an entire nation uh, on track because there's going to be people that have different there's going to be states that have different levels of resources, different levels of infrastructure, and honestly, different uh, willingness to actually do some of these things. But the effects are going to be felt by everybody in the country. And so when, as long as there's anybody who is sick, even like in prisons in the U.S., there is going to be a risk to the public at large. And uh, yeah, until we get the last case out, uh, we, we've all got to deal with this. So now, given that we kind of know what the problems are and we're making progress on them, but we're not there yet, I mean, look into the future a little for me. I mean, where do you see us in a year or six months or even the end of the summer? I mean, is there a point where we're having parties again, where we're going to concerts? That'd be so nice. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, I think people um, want to hear some some kind of frame to wrap their, their mind around. There are models that show um, that uh, the virus will be uh, at a very low point um, by sort of the end of summer, as long as we keep up uh, some degree of social distancing. Now, does it... Now, with summer... Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) You mentioned the summer, and I mean, I've certainly heard some people speculate that there could be changes in the season, could affect it, we don't know, and then it might come back in the fall. I mean, and and I I look at some of those models, too, but I certainly don't know exactly how to read them, and I see a peak, and I see an end to it, but I don't know what all they're taking into account when we see the end to that. Is that the end, or is that a break? Right, and what the models are showing is exactly what you're saying, a normal little sort of mountain thing there. It's got a real peak on it, and it comes back down. What we're dealing with uh, as a country right now is a a three-and-a-half-week-long plateau. We have been at maximum coronavirus (laughs) number of cases per day for three-and-a-half solid weeks, and uh, I don't actually see that changing. So what's going on is the virus is going down in some states that have uh, stricter restrictions, and the virus is going up a corresponding amount in the states that are loosening up in general. I mean, there's you know, 50 states, a little bit of noise in that data. But, uh, yeah, as a country, we're not doing great, and I don't think there are any models that are predicting this sort of plateau or that accurately say how we, how we get off the plateau. Because mm-hmm. I'd like to start going back downhill again. Yeah, yeah. Um, do we know any more about why it seems to be so mild in some people and so severe in others? I mean, it's everything from, oh, I couldn't taste anything for a week to people dying or on ventilators. Yeah, yeah. We know little bits. And so the little things that we know are that um, there are big differences between um, people. So there are two different proteins that have to be on a cell, like turned on at that moment, Um, that the virus is going to need in order to get into that cell. Um, And we know that 
in children and in women, these genes are turned on to a lesser extent. There just aren't as many opportunities for the virus to get in and go wild. What we do know, though, is that if the virus actually manages to take hold in a child, so children are probably as exposed as anybody else uh, in this world because they're living with their parents and people their parents' age are, uh, you know, in the highest uh, um, group in terms of the number of cases. But uh, so the children are exposed most likely, but they're not actually getting sick, at least not all of them are getting sick. And it's probably because, uh, yeah, some of the virus gets in there, it just doesn't find a home, and it falls apart before um, it's able to infect a cell. It's kind of a ticking clock scenario as far as the virus is concerned. Once it's outside of a person, it has a very limited shelf life. And if it doesn't get into the right cell right away, then, uh, yeah, no infection, which is great. Now, what do you make of the studies that talk about how long it lives on surfaces and things like that? Because I, I know I talked to one uh, infectious disease specialist who said, you know, those studies are a real limited because they're they're in vitro, not in vivo, I think was the term he used. So basically, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's too sterile to really be useful. And there are different studies. There are people that have done it with actual sunlight and stuff like that. I think the key is, when's the last time you licked a countertop or a doorknob? The answer is probably never, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much the only way that you're going to get enough of that virus into you um, uh, from one of those surfaces, or else you'd have to really dig around in your eye or something. But, um, no, most likely when the virus is transmitting between people, it seems to involve a lot of close contact, like being pretty close to each other for a pretty long amount of time. It's not like there's a set amount of time where this magic little bell rings and all of a sudden you get infected. It's just that it takes probably a lot of individual virus particles. Each one's like a lottery ticket. And you've got to buy a whole bunch before you can be guaranteed um, that it results in an infection. Even with how infectious this disease is, that's more than others, but still it's not like I'm passing you in the grocery store unless it's a right. sort of a one-in-a-million <laughs> shot. If you're coughing as I'm yawning, maybe, but... <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. No drive-by SARS. Yeah. Right, right. No, I mean, that's useful because people are people are scared, as I'm sure you can imagine. For and sure. uh and, and, yeah. and we're not so sure. So that helps me out there because the masks obviously then are, are a really key component. Are we mask people forever now or <laughs> or is this no, till we no, get no. through this? Just till we get through this. This is our little sign of solidarity. And this is the one thing that everybody can actually do that will help a great deal. A lot of the other measures that we've been talking about are things that only a government, somebody with a lot of money and access to people and laws mm -hmm. <laughs> is able to do. But, yeah, wearing a mask is something everybody can do and should do. And, uh, yeah, compliance has not been great down here in Texas. And <laughs> I think they're probably going to see a spike in cases because of that. But, uh, yeah, other places where they're wearing masks, I think we're going to see a uh, difference. We should see less transmission. What is your take on antibody testing? You hear a lot of talk about it and whether or not it's reliable. Um, I mean, is that a blind alley or is that really useful or are we just not there yet? Uh, it's okay. Um, antibody testing works great, but it doesn't work until maybe two or three weeks after you're infected. And um, all the antibody test tells you is that a person has had an infection. It doesn't say whether they made enough of an immune response that it's going to be long-lasting and be able to protect them again in a few weeks or months or even a year. 
And what we do know about antibodies is that they do uh, seem to be going down already. So we've got people that have been infected uh, three months ago now or even four months ago. And there are some studies where they looked at their antibody levels, and you can just see them dropping, 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 and getting kind of close to the line where they probably wouldn't do any good uh, anymore. And so, yeah, antibody tests are, are fine as kind of a forensic tool to go back in and figure out, all right, who had it? How, how, did, how did we get here? <laughs> but not particularly useful for detecting active infections, I would say. Or, or immunity then. I mean, we really don't know a whole lot or about immunity, immunity here. Yeah, we don't, and what we do know is not encouraging. It does not. We haven't seen anything to indicate that there's going to be long-term immunity to this virus. All the signs so far are that um, you might have a few people who are immune, but even among people who get really sick with the virus, it looks like immunity is going to be a short-term thing, maybe something like uh, a year or 16 months. Now, and this might be going way too far, but just that what I'm thinking now is that if the immunity is not really there and you're going to get it again potentially, um, is it, is there any kind of indication, like, let's say I get it and it's not real mild. Do I at least know about myself that my system is such that it won't be real serious or might it be I'm on a ventilator next time or vice versa? If somebody really fights for their life, gets through it, the next time they get it, is it going to be another fight for their life or could it be different every time? Right. And so what you're asking, so in virology terms, what you're asking is, okay, so is this thing going to be like dengue virus where the first time you get it, it's bad, but the second time you get it, it'll kill you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or is it going to be like some other kind of virus where the first time you get it, you will either get over it or die, but you'll be immune for life. So that's the way uh, smallpox used to work. And the answer is we don't know for sure. And that is not an experiment I'm comfortable doing, you know, in people's living rooms and out in the world. I'd rather see that worked out in a lab <laughs> yeah. long before it was tested in, you know, society at large. That's how we keep things safe. Yeah. So no one no, is, that makes me nervous. No one can walk around thinking they're Superman regardless of antibodies or if they've had it or anything yeah. like that. For sure. I mean, you can think what you want, but it's just not true. Yeah. So, so just to, to look ahead then, let's, you know, we get through this. Obviously, you're studying, you know, things that I've never heard of yet, and hopefully I never do. But what's the next big threat, and have we learned lessons, or, or, or is this, are we doomed to repeat our mistakes here? Well, all we know is that there are many uh, variants of this virus that are out there in bats in Asia right now, Asia and uh, parts of Africa, actually. And so as long as there are both people and bats alive on this planet, we're going to have to get really good at dealing with this. I've seen that we, if we get things like this sort of national testing labs working really well, these are things that can work uh, during flu season. They can help us track down and slow down uh, the spread of flu viruses. And they can just basically make us stronger, a little more robust. Uh, hardened would be the military term against um, uh, infections and outbreaks like this in the future. And we're seeing parts of that being put into place. And I just hope that these are permanent parts. There are a lot of things that this has revealed that we really need and that we were kind of slacking on. And uh, this is a good opportunity to get those short up. Well, Doctor, I thank you very much for your time. I think we're going to hear a lot from you in the coming uh, weeks and days ahead, and I, I really appreciate you as a resource. 